Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi, this is David Rothkopf. I am your host. We are coming to you actually from New York City, as we tend to on Thursday afternoons live um, on YouTube as well as via our regular podcast channels. And I am joined here uh, as uh, on many Thursdays, and I hope on many Thursdays to come, by Ryan Goodman of the NYU Law School, which is just across the street. I trust you made it here safely and easily, Ryan. In a New York commute. In a, in a, <laughs> right. And uh, uh, we're very delighted to have uh, a guest with us who's been on Deep State Radio before, um, uh, Nada Bacos, who is a former CIA analyst and national security expert who has a new book that is coming out in a couple of days called The Targeter, My Life in the CIA, Hunting Terrorists and Challenging the White House, um, which I have just finished. Usually when people send us books, I'll skim it uh, and read a couple of reviews. And I have to say, I read this one from beginning to end. It is a great book. It reads like a movie, which is a good thing. Um, and it echoes a, b- a bunch of movies that people have probably seen. And so let me begin by congratulating you, Nada, on a really, really terrific book. Thank you very much. That's a ringing endorsement. Have I ever heard one? Well, it is a ringing endorsement. And the fact that, you know, one of the things I learned in the book is that you were not able, not only able to help hunt down some of the world's most dangerous terrorists, you did this while owning St. Bernard Dogs, which frankly, to me, seems almost an insurmountable task all by itself. <laughs> I love dogs. I love all dogs. <laughs> but it's just always seemed to me enormously, enormously um, challenging. So, I mean, I guess I, 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 let me start sort of with a softer sort of question, and then we can sort of move into the book and then what, how it's relevant in the context of the times we live in now. Um, but but, but I, I, I guess the question is, you know, why'd you write it? Why'd you write it now? What is it that compelled you to do this? Um, you, you left the agency a while back. Um, you were there really in the heart of the Iraq war and the first phases of what we are calling at the time, the war on terror. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, what, what has brought you to this book in 2019? So I actually finished the book, uh, approximately four years ago. Well, I guess I, I really started, you know, finishing up the manuscript draft around that time, but it had been stuck with, um, the government for the last two years in review. So I actually had to sue the government to get the book dislodged from the review process. But 
I first contemplated writing this book in 2012. I just felt like the, the narrative around the Iraq war was really depicted by very senior level officials within the intelligence community or by administration officials. And I wanted to just have this optic, this kind of stake in the ground from a mid to senior level manager of this is what we experienced on our end. This is what it was like to do the day-to-day work. Um, and, and just from a woman's perspective, working at the CIA, what, what it was like for me. Well, all of that comes through extremely um, in great detail down to the stale taco chips that you would survive on um, that were left over from happy hours you didn't actually have and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, let me turn to Ryan. Perhaps he has, a, he has another question and then I want to pick up on some of the themes from the book that resonate today. Yeah, so I guess one of the questions I had is I thought there are multiple times in the book where you very keenly um, focus in on what are seem to be kind of imponderables in intelligence analysis um, and how we kind of benchmark success. Um, so there are three examples that I thought of uh, from your book. The one is that, you know, the there's the hunt for Zarqawi and then after he is uh, taken off the battlefield and post his death, you actually are caught up in different emotions and intellectual trains of thought about what did this really mean because after his death there's this the cycle of violence actually starts to spike um, and American soldiers deaths uh, go up dramatically that was one piece of it another one was you talk about you said you conducted your own thought experiment in terms of who would replace him and that the US actually intercepted um, uh, bin Laden's uh, chosen person to kind of take over the organization um, al-Iraqi and that he actually might have been a, mo- a more moderating force, uh, though obviously these things in terms of levels of moderation are different. And, you know, the thought experiment was the uh, idea that what if he had, in fact, had um, not been intercepted by the U.S. and had taken over control of the organization after Zarqawi, maybe we would have been in a better situation without ISIS. And then the other one was you actually, you know, I thought did a really interesting analysis of the so-called surge and whether or not it was successful because you talk about, you know, sweeping in many of these insurgents into detention facilities actually, like Albuca became known as the academy because it was a lab, a lab for extremism and actually making some of them even more radical uh, than they went in. So all of those are, you know, leave one in a very unsettled state and I just want to invite you to kind of talk about that more. Um, given that you're operating on this very analytic level, but you kind of see the difficulty of making certain kinds of empirical claims and um, and how you uh, think of it now that you've finished the book and, and the kinds of benchmarks for success, knowing what we can know and what uh, we can't know. Yeah, well, for the first piece of your question, um, looking at just this, you know, pivotal character within the, the organization, looking at Abu, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. I didn't see him necessarily as, as this linchpin that once we're removed, the whole organization would dissolve because that is not how extremism or the ideology typically functions. His group had galvanized enough support, resources, and money by, by that time that they were able to sustain without him. The bench doesn't have to be entirely deep 
if you have a lot of resources to pull from. And by that point, they had Al-Qaeda to help step in and, and take some of the reins. But as we know from history, ISIS developed and, and took over that area. But I think so often the narrative arc around these, the terrorist organizations are, you know, X person was killed today, and that somehow helps dismantle the organization in this way. Well, it's, it's not always uh, a hugely impactful situation if one person is removed from that network or organization because we're not thinking proactively enough. We're not thinking about what does this mean as far as the arc of how this extremist group is going to continue to thrive and or grow or diminish. Mm-hmm. And uh, you were, you were um, what was your second question? You, you ran the thought experiment <laughs> at the end of the book about yes. if um, al-Iraqi had been the next leader in a certain sense, that the world would have actually you know, turned out maybe very differently. Right. And that, that was largely based on the fact that we were able to see some of the communications going on between Zarqawi and Bin Laden that I talk about in my book. Um, letters that they had written to each other when they were trying to negotiate Zarqawi joining al-Qaeda. And Zawahiri and Bin Laden were disgruntled with his um, nonchalant attitude toward killing Iraqis. They really wanted him to peel this back. They didn't think this was a smart strategy. They thought, you know, locals would turn on him. He just continued. He wanted chaos. He saw anyone who was Shia or um, even Sunnis who wouldn't join his organization as lesser than and not any on the same plane as uh, coalition forces, military forces. So in an odd sort of way, Al-Qaeda was uh, a more moderating voice, although Zarqawi did not end up listening to them. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, struck me and also has some resonance with today was even earlier in the book than the parts that Ryan refers to, you talk a little bit about how the Zarqawi narrative got established by political leaders, right? So that you describe a scene where you're listening to George Bush describe, you know, him as the linchpin because they're looking for a justification um, or this is implicit. And so they want to say, here is the Al Qaeda guy in Iraq and, you know, he's a bad guy. And you describe another scene a little later where, where Colin Powell is describing this. And I'm, I'm wondering, as you look back on that, um, how that resonates with some of the, the, the narrative establishment that we're, we're starting to hear around Iran. Well, there's a lot of parallels for certain. Um, Zarqawi's narrative coming from the administration, the nuances were turned into more definitive um, connections with al-Qaeda. Zarqawi was not part of al-Qaeda in the run-up to the Iraq war. He joined al-Qaeda much later into the invasion in 2004 or five, he ended up um, pledging uh, allegiance or swearing by ad to bin Laden. But prior to that, he was an extremist with his own agenda. He had a loosely affiliated network. Um, but when you listen to Colin Powell's speech at the UN or even the Sunday morning talk shows from the administration, 
that link sounds much more definitive than it, than it was. And I, of course, at this point, when I'm listening to some of the language around Iran, and there was even uh, something released about Iran's support of Al-Qaeda. Well, before and after 9-11, uh, there's, there's been a lot written about Iran um, and Al-Qaeda transiting through Iran. And then, of course, whether or not they know, the government is complicit, or if they knew. But a lot of this information isn't new. This is old information. This is not an imminent threat. It's not like they're harboring Al-Qaeda to build another base similar to what they did in Afghanistan. So when I hear some of this rhetoric, I hear this is not the whole story. This is p pulling out pieces and politicizing intelligence, even if it's historical information. When I listen to them discuss WMD, it resonates because in the same way, um, we're not hearing the salient points of, is it an imminent threat? That is the ultimate question. And even the national intelligence estimate, as flawed as it was around the WMD, stated it was not an imminent threat. Uh, when it came to Iraq. And I think when we as listeners are listening to this administration discuss Iran, we have to constantly be asking that question. What is it that's so pressing that we need to now take action? Um, along the same lines, I also wondered if you'd maybe speak a little bit about what we might see as outside observers around the Iran issue today in terms of protocols of how intelligence should be handled uh, by the government. Uh, and what you saw in your experience with Iraq, because you, know, you you talk a little bit about Paul Wolfowitz setting up the Office of Special Plans inside the Defense Department and then cherry-picking intelligence information coming out of the CIA. You mentioned, you know, Dick Cheney coming over to the CIA, which we can now see today with uh, Bolton going over to the CIA and to Langley to talk about the intelligence on Iran. Are there So one question would be, like, what are the protocols that you think we should look for as indicators that if they aren't being met or new protocols are being put in place, we should be worried about the politicization. And then the other question is, what do you think about the CIA leadership? Does that, how much can we count on uh, Gina Haspel uh, looking after the equities of the CIA and intelligence analysis, given that she, you know, grew up inside the CIA in, in her career? Is that something that could give us any kind of comfort here? I personally take comfort in the fact that Gina Haspel grew up inside the agency and understands how to protect intelligence and the validity of offering objective information. I don't think that um, we can rely on Sunday morning talk shows, cable news to translate this for us if we're really discussing taking action inside of Iran because it's, it's, not, it's not something that can be discussed by pundits, by people that are not part of some type of um, government uh, overseers, say, I don't know, Congress. <laughs> I really, really, really am looking to Congress at this point to translate for us, for the American people, what is it the intelligence is saying and what is it we really need to pay attention to. There's a reason these committees exist. I don't want them to send their staffers to these briefings. I want them to be listening. And we deserve some kind of unclassified, declassified version before any action is taken. And we're, we're supposed to give resources and lives of young people to, the, to any action that they take. 
Well, of course, we live in an unusual time in that regard, where the president of the United States seems to make it his regular um, uh, chore to um, attack the findings of the intelligence community or to diminish them. Uh, and and he's done it, you know, in the past 36 hours, 48 hours, you know, once with regard to North Korea and saying, well, you know, the people have come to me and they say these North Korean tests mean something, but I don't think so. Maybe, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's got good intentions and I kind of like him. And, uh, you know, by the way, you know, North Korea is surrounded by water, so it's good real estate. We could build some condos there. And then... You know, similarly, you know, after Mueller spoke, uh, he Trump had this gaffe, um, uh, you know, which, you know, is the Michael Kinsley definition of a gaffe, which is he said the truth by accident, <laughs> you know, and 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 said something like, um, you know, you know, he acknowledged that the the Russians helped him win the election. And then he immediately said, well, no, they didn't help me win the election. And. And, uh, you know, he started and, and he went immediately back on his whole thing, you know, sort of minimizing all the intelligence that says the Russians did do it. So, I mean, you, you, you reading your book, you know, I got the impression that you're frustrated with the degree to which the Bush administration had their thumb on the scale with regard to some of the intelligence. Um, you mentioned Doug Feith in addition to Paul Wolfowitz mm-hmm. and, and, and Cheney. But but. It's, it's worse now, right? Or, or, or at least co- there's plenty of cause for concern now. Yes. Well, there's cause for concern, but I would say, with caveats, over overall, the Bush administration does not resemble the Trump administration. We don't have a president. We didn't have a president tweeting. Well, we didn't have the same type of social media, but you know, his in discounting intelligence in real time, not talking publicly against the the intel community. He was thoughtfully asking questions through his through his staff. We now have a president who, if he doesn't like something, just tells everybody a different story, which is not factually based whatsoever. But there were people inside of the Pentagon, such as Doug Seitz, who had a different perspective, who was they were looking for the same kind of biased confirmation of what they wanted to believe should happen and what should exist. So while what we're, what we're seeing now seem, is unprecedented, there were seeds of that then. And I would say now, I think one of the hardest parts about us, the American public, is who do we listen to at this point? Who, is, who do we have now to rely on to tell us the truth? And we're looking around at the collection of policymakers who are supposed to be communicating on behalf of the intelligence community to us. And we have to just keep asking ourselves who really a understands the problem, 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 and who's going to communicate it in a factual way. You know, I realized I didn't follow up directly on what NATO was saying regarding the Congress, Ryan. But you, you've been actually pretty um, outspoken in saying the Russian attack of the United States was an intelligence attack. There's counterintelligence findings that should be there. Mm. We should be hearing them. And and so far, nothing. Right? I mean, I, maybe you want to follow up on that in this regard. But I- yeah. Um, well, so far, I, I think two things, and then one thing that happened, one of the two is what happened this week. So first is the fact that the Adam Schiff is the 
chair of the House Intelligence Committee telling the American public that the House Intelligence Committee has been in the dark for one and a half years about this massive uh, counterintelligence investigation into what Russia did and who within the Trump circle might be compromised, and that they know nothing, um, and that he's fighting tooth and nail now just to get a briefing. And then he has said explicitly to the Washington Post that he believes that it's the White House and Bill Barr that are stopping the intelligence community from being able to brief even just the gang of eight uh, in in the Congress, which is just an astonishing fact. It's just a show-stopping um, kind of fact. And then the other one was just a line uh, in Bob Mueller's uh, statement this week in the less than 10 minutes. He has a line in there where he says, my office is not involved in the provision of the underlying intelligence information to uh, the Congress, which means that it's, I guess, Bill Barr's show. Um, which could also be uh, quite remarkable in terms of what's actually going on. It was a statement that he made that I had not seen made any other time, and therefore I think every every single word was very deliberate in his uh, statement. But I think for him to say that was also important in terms of trying to understand what's actually going on and what Congress, what information Congress actually has available to it. Yeah, so NATO, I mean, this sort of, raises a, a complication with regard to your comment, which is seems like there are folks in this administration that don't want the Congress to be doing their oversight. Sure. I I I, I don't disagree. I think that um, once Congress reiterates anything that that the president doesn't support as far as intelligence or information. It becomes problematic, but that doesn't mean that Congress shouldn't still do their job. Yeah, well, there, there, there is 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 no question about that. Um, I've got a, a kind of a more general question, um, and I I don't know, I don't, and I don't I don't want it to be an uncomfortable question, but I'm I'll just sort of lay it out there. I have long felt that the focus of the United States government, not just in the Bush administration, but subsequently in the Obama administration, on the war on terror as a as a kind of a predicate for involvement in the Middle East, and more importantly, as an organizing principle for our, uh, our, our national security strategy, was deeply flawed. Um, because, you know, while there were terrorists the scale of the direct threat to the United States was overstated. The uh, scale of their organizations was overstated. The uh, a relative investment we put towards those as opposed to other kinds of emerging threats seemed to be out of all proportion. And and you're in the middle of this, and, and you understood exactly how bad some of these people were uh, and the sacrifices many people made in dealing with this. And I'm just wondering whether you think, you know, this assessment is correct or or how you view in retrospect the fact that from September 11th, 2001 through, you know, we'll see how this Iran thing goes, but through very recently at least, the United States has sort of said the war on terror is our biggest issue. Uh, it's only recently that we've gone back to thinking a little bit about great powers. I agree. Uh, I mean, it's easy to to say 
right after 9-11, this was an unprecedented time. We hadn't seen an attack like that on our soil um, since really Pearl Harbor. And not saying it was on the same scale, but it seemed to have the same sort of mental impact. I don't think we were prepared at all for this type of attack mentally, um, even from a government readiness perspective. Our immediate reaction was go find the bad guys, take them all out. It'll all be over. I think hopefully we're smarter than that by now. Um, I'm not sure because the kinetic option isn't, isn't a strategy. It's just an immediate um, tactical response. So we didn't at all think about what comes next in from a, you know, larger perspective. There were, there were people inside of the government that were thinking this way. I had many colleagues who were saying, beating the drum around, but what are we doing to rebuild? What are we doing about governance? Uh, what are we going to do about infrastructure? But, and, well, even, and understanding even, that extremism really is a spectrum. This is not something that we are going to be able to just um, kill our way out of. Hopefully our government at some point puts together a plan um, that can actually provide some kind of perspective about what our reaction should be going forward. Well, even you in the book, I think, you know, you draw a conclusion towards the end, I, I seem to recall, in which you say, you know, the, the answer to a lot of these issues is diplomacy. The answer to a lot of these issues has to do with some of the socioeconomics, some of the political issues on the ground. It's not military. Right, exactly. I mean, it's not necessarily diplomacy in all aspects um, where we can, you know, we traditionally think of it as just the State Department primacy, it's diplomacy and how do we fix, you know, governance structures? How do we help rebuild some of the areas that have been devastated in Syria? How do we help, how do we make sure that we're not prolonging and helping extremism grow by ignoring the problem? You know, it's easy for us to recoil and say we're not needed in the rest of the world and this isn't, this isn't our problem. We have enough problems here. Well, we found out on 9-11 that not everything um, can always be ignored. I mean, we have, we have a global impact. Uh, we are very globally connected. And whether we like it or not, sometimes that will impact us here. When I, I was walking into the studio here and asked Ryan about the book, he said, well, of course, the first thing I did was I flipped to all the sections on torture. <laughs> which led to some real questions I have now about Ryan um, and how he reads books generally. Um, but, well, it wasn't personal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but maybe you want to follow. I do too. Maybe you, oh, that's your first move too. What, 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 what do you say, Ryan? Yeah. Following up on that. So, yeah, I was trying to figure out in a certain sense where you came out on certain issues in terms of the history of the interrogation program. Um and certainly, you know, from your own personal experience, it sounds like you um, understood it to be actually counterproductive. So that when you were in certain situations, I think it's Camp Cropper, and you were handed these detainees that had been obviously abused by special operation forces in this kind of black site, unofficial site in the, I think it was the southwestern part of the uh, Baghdad International Airport, you get these people that are so broken uh, you aren't able to read them in a certain way. 
they're desperate, so they don't want to be sent back, so they'll say anything. And so I, I think that that's where you're coming from on it, if I understand that correctly. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there's that one uh, particular piece uh, that you talk about with the, uh, um, I, I might mispronounce his name, but Hassan Ghul. And that mm -hmm. um, in a certain way, you had you had been quoted, and uh, there's that in the Senate uh, report as kind of suggesting that he actually provided the vital information before he was ever handed over into CIA custody, which would be therefore supporting the Senate's report's conclusion that torture isn't effective and that all of that lines up. But on the other hand, you also did kind of then state what the agency's position had been on him, that under interrogation, a course of interrogation techniques, then he reveals much greater specifics. Then he, and the specifics end up leading to the key person who's then connected um, to uh, bin Laden. Um, so I kind of, so I guess in the sense of, I wasn't sure where I was left with understanding what your view is of the program um, and uh, its effectiveness is one part of it. The other part of it is, you know, when you talked about that the special operation forces that were engaged in the, some of these techniques, that they were actually um, motivated for a cause of trying to save lives, right? Not out of um, uh, sadism or something like that. But, you know, another question I would have is you're so, you have such a deep knowledge of that and have thought about it in such a reflective way that obviously I would think couldn't explain everybody. Um, and some of it is about dehumanization. It's not just about saving lives. So that's got to be part of the, the social psychological mix of what was going on. So one, you know, how effective do you, or ineffective um, do you think it was as a program? And what do you think motivated people down to the individual level who were involved in some of the worst uh, cases of it? So I wasn't at any of the black sites. Um, I was reading intelligence from some of the detainees uh, um, when it was relevant to the piece that I was looking at. I didn't, I didn't have a real sense for what was effective and, and at what point they had been eliciting information from some of the detainees. This is from the CIA detainees. But what my optic was working with detainees that were in U.S. military custody in, in Iraq was that some of them are, there's probably very little you're going to be able to do to elicit information. They were not interested in, in cooperating. They really were there because they were doing something against coalition forces and they had no interest in, in uh, playing any of the interview games. They, and then on the flip side, you're right. I didn't, I did interact with people who had been, you know, gone through a series of um, either by Saddam or, you know, administration had been tortured by them or prior to arriving to the detention center, they had gone through some, roughing up by the U.S. military. And it wasn't, it wasn't clear to me at, at what point, because it depended on the individual, where is the line for some of these individuals to be able to be interested in cooperating with you? Is it that they desperately want to get out of prison or is it just that they really are hardliners and they're interested in, in working with the opposition? I didn't have a definitive um you know, stake in the book about torture because I just wanted to relay my experiences and what I was actually 
um, part of during that time period and let the reader decide for themselves, what do, how, who do we want to be going forward and, and what moral ground do we want to stand on? Because mm-hmm. I think that's ultimately the, the real question. It's not whether or not it works, because I think that is this devolving cycle of conversation that's really not even what it should be about. I think it should be about who are we as Americans, but acknowledge at the same time, do we have a plan to get information from people if they're less interested than talking to us? If you pick up an Al-Qaeda central member who the last thing they're going to do is give U.S. military information, um, are we okay with that? Is that we, we just need to make the decision and be done with it. And I feel like we're still having the conversation rather than just saying, uh, no, that's not who we are. Well, let me go to another conversation that you um, broach in the book that has been going on for even longer than the torture conversation. And, and that is the role of women in the national security community, the role of women in society in general. Uh, and of course, you know, people's views are, are colored by this because they know that, you know, your colleagues, Jessica Chastain and Claire Danes, uh, led a, you know, certain kind of life. Um, but, <laughs> My but, colleagues. Yeah, your <laughs> colleagues. You know, that's a, that's in, in the imagination of many of the listeners. That's how they're viewing this. Right. But, 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 but of course, in reality, you 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 faced hurdles. You talk about hurdles that other people faced, and you mentioned at the very beginning that one of the reasons you wanted to write this was to talk a little bit about um, the role of women in jobs like this, and many women, uh, uh, non non fictional women as opposed to f- fictional women, uh, played an absolutely central role in all of this. And so I'm just wondering what the message is on that 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 you're trying to convey to the reader. Well, I just feel like there's so many of the agency books that have been written have been by men. And I thought this, this seems like an optic that a lot of people don't know. And we are always asked questions about, is it just like Hollywood? You know, how real is Homeland? All of those kinds of questions. And I feel like this is helping preempt (laughs) some of that conversation. Um, But on the, you know, honestly, on the operation side of the house, it, while I was still there, it wasn't that evolved. Women were still not in leadership roles or senior roles. And it, it still felt like you were one of the few women in the room sometimes uh, when we were having meetings on, on any given issue. The analyst side has much more gender equity. It, it definitely didn't feel that way. So there's, you know, there's very different parts of the agency, but yeah, there's still, there was at that time still this very, uh, post World War II Cold War sort of mentality of how the world works. Well, you know, given given some of the developments in current American politics, it sounds like a very twenty first century American attitude too, as state after state seeks to claim away from women uh, rights that they get gained in the nineteen seventies. <laughs> um, but and it should have had all along. Uh, Ryan, we only have five minutes to go. I just thought. Perhaps you have one more well, question. Just for one more, one more point about this, because now that Gina Hassel is running the agency and there is a woman in charge of the operations side, I was really relieved to see that because that's been a very important point um, and, and a move forward for the operations side of the house to have a woman at a senior level 
in the operations piece because I wasn't sure I was going to see that in my lifetime. It was just a slow time coming, but I was, I was actually really relieved to see this. You considered a step forward from Mike Pompeo having his wife as kind of the first lady of the CIA and <laughs> trooping her through there as he did. <laughs> With, which was kind of, kind of I'm weird. I'm going to not answer that one. Yeah, kind, of, <laughs> kind of weird. Go ahead, Ryan. Yeah, I guess my last question might be just about a, kind of a contrast from our conversation to today. And it's the end of the book where you do talk about threat perception with respect to counterterrorism and the inflation of the threat um, in the American mind. And what's so remarkable, it seems like today, is the inability of something like the Russia investigation to penetrate the American mind to uh, raise it to a level in which our political representatives and government officials would be doing something about it. So that like moment of almost desperation in a certain sense at the end of the of Mueller's statement this week where he says, in my closing remarks, I want to say the allegations of the systematic attack against the United States in 2016 is something all Americans should be focused on. It's just so remarkable how you think about that. Like, where are we um, when the intelligence community is shouting as loudly as they can about this, but half of the country is missing it and the White House isn't acting on it and uh, where where we're left with? Uh, You know, like, what what do you think about that side of the kind of state of threat perception in the country? Well, I mean, <laughs> the fact that it's 2019 and this happened in 2016 and I have yet to see any kind of programmatic approach toward helping uh, take the, the fuel out of this disinformation campaign. Uh, what are we doing? What What is the point? I don't even understand how it, at this time period we haven't put together any kind of defense mechanism or offensive mechanism in place to stop this digital invasion. How are we supposed to, to, we as the American people, if our government isn't doing something, how are we supposed to defend ourselves against this? Part of this is educating ourselves. This is on also us, the public, but in our defense, how is the government not taking more, more proactive, at least some proactive steps? I mean, maybe I'm missing them and I don't, I don't see it. I haven't read about it. But at this point, all I feel like is if we're missing this, the most obvious thing that we could be defending against, what else are we not doing? Well, I think that's a really, really important point, and it's kind of a great place to tie this up. And I'll do that even though clearly Ryan's question was the best question of of this interview here because I think it really cuts to some core issues, and that's, of course, why he's here. Um, but you know, I mean, here we, you know, as just listening to you guys, the Russian effort to influence the U S election in 2016 in and of itself would be one of the biggest intelligence successes of modern memory. Uh, and it's not in and of itself because there is a Brexit component, a French component, an Italian component, an Austrian component, a German component, and Hungarian component, a Polish component. They're trying to do this across the Western world. And so we're in the midst of a moment where there is a massive intelligence operation directed at us all. And, and you know, to me, it was very striking 
listening to Mueller yesterday because that was his opening and his closing. And essentially it was a sense, what he was saying was, this is a big deal. We're being attacked, okay? You're missing the point of all of this. And it's not collusion. It's not even obstruction, which is a serious issue, although it, the obstruction becomes complicit with the Russian operation. But that, that there is this massive intelligence operation against us. It's ongoing. And as, as you said, Dana, we, we, it, not only have there not been clear steps to counteract it, but there have been systematic efforts within the Trump administration not to fund parts of the government that are supposed to help us fight this, to, to the systematic efforts by the president and the people around him to minimize this thing. It's, it's really through the looking glass um, compared to where we were even as recently as when you were in the agency. It really is. And at this point, I, you know, there's parallels between the drumbeat of war between Iraq and, and Iran, but I'm also looking at this thinking we must be missing some other real important national security priorities if this is how we're handling something this obvious. And I, I'm not saying about this is about the intelligence collection, but the policymaker and the White House administration response and attention. Which brings us back to, you know, September 10th, 2001, right? What are we missing? Right. Um, and, exactly. And, and th- that's why this story, this book is so terrific. And I'm not just saying that um, to make you feel good, Nada. It is a great book that people who want to read books about human beings who are engaged in important tasks and dramatic times will want to read and people who are interested in the policy implications and and uh, the national security side of things will also want to read. It's very, very compelling. Uh, was worth all of the effort that you put into it. I am sure it will do extremely well. And Ryan is nodding. I don't, you can't see him. But 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 uh, but I I tend to think he agrees. I agree, and congratulations. It's really great. Yeah, Con- congratulations. Thank you. Con- congratulations, Data, and you're going to do terrifically well. And we encourage everybody out there listening to Deep State Radio, tens of thousands of people, according to uh, our our uh, people counters out there, um, to go out and and buy the book, which is available on Amazon, and. Um, and to read it and tell your friends about it. And uh, hopefully you'll come back sometime soon, Nada. Good luck on your on your book tour. Um, and, of course, Ryan will see you again very soon. And all of you who listen to Deep State Radio will see you again next week. And if you want more from Deep State Radio or Deep State Radio Live or Unredacted from DSR, which this week had two great interviews with Hillary Clinton, with um, Philippe Reines, Molly Jungfast, and Emily Brandwin, or Emily Brandwin, who this week on her podcast uh, for us, Washington for Beautiful People, interviewed the creators of The Americans to provide you with yet another perspective on all of this. Uh, There's great stuff to listen to. So go to thedsrnetwork.com, listen to that, and we look forward to having you all back again very soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. 
Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.